0: We'll be in chapter 2 of Amos. We're going to go look today at verses 6 through 16 this morning. We'll read them now. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness To possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons. For prophets. And some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so? O people of Israel. Declares the Lord. But you. Made the Nazarites drink wine. And commanded the prophets saying. You shall not prophesy. Behold. Behold. I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, that as creatures made by you, you chose to speak to that which you made and to reveal Yourself and Your nature and Your character and Your mighty works of redemption for a lost and fallen creation. We pray this morning in a difficult text that Your Word would do its work in our hearts today by the power of Your Spirit. Let error fall from my mouth this morning and get far away from us. May we hear your word and the way your spirit intended today. We ask this in confidence in the strong name of Jesus today. Amen. In 1912, the Titanic set out on her maiden voyage. She's this new largest and fastest class of ocean liners, uh, having this uh, fascinating compartmentalized whole. That was said to make the ship virtually unsinkable. Because if it sustained damage to one section of the hull, it could be sealed off from the rest of the ship and maintain its buoyancy. The press leading up to the launch uh, of this ship, it had the whole world buzzing with this new era in shipbuilding technology. There was a few other ships out with this technology already. But this was the largest. As the voyage gets underway, this new unsinkable ship is filled with passengers, families, and they're living a good life, having a good time because the ship has many amenities for its passengers in all confidence that they would reach their destination of New York City. And most of you know this story. I don't need to recount the story of the Titanic. But what you might not know is that The Titanic was known to have received up to seven messages warning them of a dangerous ice field in their course. And at least the seven were received by the Titanic. And yet she proceeded into the ice field in the darkness of night, running at full speed. Overconfidence. It was the blackness of the invisible night horizon. It was in that that the lookout, Frederick Fleet, would spot their doom. But he had to wait for it to even get close enough to identify what it was. And when he does and he sees it, he would ring the alarm bell from the crow's nest in a panic and yell down from the nest, Iceberg! Right ahead! And Captain E.J. Smith, well, he tries to change course to avoid the collision, but the ship, she's too large, and she's moving too fast to maneuver like that and to get out of the way in time. And so just a few hours into her maiden voyage, the great, unsinkable ship will make her final of what was many distress calls after striking the iceberg, the last known transmission to another ship that was on its way to aid them. Come as quickly as you can, old man. Our engine room is filling up to the boilers. And then they lost power, and the great unsinkable ship would be swallowed by the sea. The fate of the Titanic resembles much the status of Israel as Amos arrives to proclaim a dark judgment to them. They both had every advantage to be successful in their endeavors. But the warnings were ignored. The rules were not followed. Danger was knowingly embraced to their demise. The title of this sermon today is Traitors Beneath the Banner of the Redeemed. And we'll look at this text today through our outline of these three points. In 6 through 8, we'll see God's holiness transgressed. And in 9 through 12, we'll see God's redemption disregarded. And in 13 through 16, we'll see God's judgment is inescapable. Our text today is the eighth pronouncement of judgment from Amos in this book. In chapter 1, you read of others leading up to this, in there, he declares six judgments on Gentile nations and then one on Judah. And they're all built on this same formula, not the one here, but they're all, those seven are built on the same formula. Seven times you will see this, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then Amos will read the charges filed by the Lord against each nation And the charges are varied for each one, but the punishment is given the same to each. It's fire. All through chapter 1, so I will send fire. And there are two matters of context that will be helpful for us today uh, to make this text sort of come alive and make more sense. First, at this time in history, Israel has been divided into two separate kingdoms. The southern region of Israel is being ruled by the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and their king Uzziah. You can read this in the opening of Amos' letter, Amos' uh, judgment here. While the northern region is being ruled by the remaining tribes of Israel and its king Jeroboam. So Israel is split into two kingdoms and what's important is they are not friends. They are not allies. Second is that at the moment, the moment that Amos begins to preach to them, Israel is at the high watermark of her political, military, and economic influence. In 2 Kings 14, 23-29, you can see a description of how Jeroboam restored the borders of Israel and was able to take back cities that had been lost to their enemies. So Israel, they are riding high in the saddle right now under King Jeroboam. They don't have any real threats around them. They enjoy the benefits of power and wealth. in most ancient cultures, I would say probably in modern cultures very often as well, military success and wealth, power, are taken as signs that whatever deity they worship must be pleased with them. Israel would be completely presuming here that Yahweh was favoring them in light of all of their prosperity in the land. It's with this in mind I want you to put yourself in Israel's shoes. Imagine you are Israel as Amos begins to speak this word from the Lord through chapter one before we get to our text today he lists off, he lists seven of your worst enemies, with Judah among them, and he pronounces judgments of fiery destruction on each of them. How would this land on Israelite ears? Amos, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Israel, that would be a cheer, right? Yes! It's about time someone came and showed those guys whose boss and then Amos will describe how awful they are before the Lord in Israel they would they would again shout yes, preach it Amos those guys they're the worst so I will send fire says Amos Israel's attitude would be that's the that's the game over they're done the Lord is going to The Lord is going to deal with Damascus. And Amos continues, For three transgressions and for four of Gaza, of Tyre, of Edom, of the Amorites, of Moab, of Judah, I will send fire. Can you imagine the rejoicing at this news by Israel? What could be better than the Lord pronouncing judgments of fire on your enemies? This is celebration to 11. They are queuing up the We Are the Champions track on the shofar right now. They're lighting cigars. They're popping champagne bottles. The generals, they're, they're getting the Gatorade cooler and sneaking up behind King Jeroboam. The mayor, he's, he's cutting the key to the city for Amos for delivering this wonderful news. And then it's right here, right here, that we enter our text today in our first point in 6 through 8, God's holiness transgressed. You see, at this moment, Amos begins again, thus says the Lord, and you can imagine Israel is thinking, there's more, like God's got more enemies to crush before us. Who, Who could be next for three transgressions of Israel? And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Wait, what? Oh, no. Oh, no. And Amos begins to follow the the formula of the other judgments, and he begins to list charges from the Lord against Israel. In verse 6, He says, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And from their position of power, they turned to abusing it and abusing the poor for their gain. These, both of these acts, they're referring to selling debtors into slavery in order to recover your debts. The righteous here, these, these are debtors that they owe money, but they're good for their debt. If you give them the agreed-upon amount of time, they would have paid their debts off. But they're not given that time. They're hastily sold into slavery to recover what they owe. And the needy here, these would be destitute people. They perhaps cannot pay off their debts. However, it's the cost of a pair of sandals. She's telling us that their debts are so small and insignificant, they ought to have just been forgiven. Seven. You see that from their position of wealth and comfort, they knowingly turn a blind eye to the poor and the afflicted. And they go on in, to profane the name of the Lord with sexual perversion. And this part here, this is a direct violation of the Mosaic Law in Leviticus 18. It forbids incest in so many ways. You cannot come up with a configuration that would ever make it okay. Whatever the relationship of the girl is, Leviticus 18 forbids it by name. In 8, they take garments taken in pledge and they keep them overnight. This sounds a little benign. To us, But it's another violation of the Mosaic Law. It's given in Exodus 22, 26, and 27. God tells His people that you can take a cloak from a man in pledge, like, like a promissory note, like collateral. You have to return it the same day before sundown. Why? Because His cloak is what He needs for protection from the elements. He needs the warmth that it gives. And when night comes... His life might depend on it. See, they are taking life preserving items from others as collateral and then refusing to return them at the moment they would need it most, showing their disregard for others' lives in exchange for their own personal comforts. As you go into eight, they lay themselves down beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. You don't, you don't sit down in the house of God for a glass of wine with friends. It's not a casual meet-up spot. Even of a pagan God, you wouldn't, that's not what you do there. It's not the public house where you meet up after work or on date night. What they're doing is they're, they're taking wine as penalties from people for their debts extracting wine as a penalty from them, and then they're using it in worship of false gods. If you take all these ingredients and you kind of put them into a saucepan and reduce them down to their essence, you will find two main violations that are going on here of God's law. It is idolatry and hatred for neighbor. And I'm not trying to take a long list and then soften it and reduce it down to just a couple charges here. I want you to see that makes it so much worse. In The whole counsel of God's Word, we will know that Christ will use these two things to summarize the whole law and the prophets. In Matthew 22, when the Pharisees ask in 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This list of charges it amounts to a total violation of the covenant relationship between Israel and the Lord. The word of the Lord from Amos is this. In violating a part of the law, Israel has violated the whole law of God. And the Lord will not revoke the punishment. But Israel, she's... She's prosperous and mighty during this time. Their borders, they're expanding. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> wealth follows expansion. Power follows wealth. They're, not, they're at the top of their military and political game at this time. Or so they thought. Israel is here the unsinkable ship in their own mind. They don't need the Lord and His law when they seem to be faring so well on their own. After all, He would, must be pleased with them, at least until Amos shows up. Yet, they were given the law, and they were warned many times before this. And yet they persisted into the ice field of sin and idolatry over and over again. And Amos is here now. He's ringing the bell and he's calling out to Israel, Iceberg, right ahead. But by now it's, it's far too late for them to change course and avoid destruction. Amos is here Not to convince them to turn, but to expose the reality to Israel that their hearts were conquered by greed, power, heinously immoral sexual appetites, idolatry, and pride. So far, we've seen this consistent pattern of immorality and idolatry followed by the word, so, when God says, so, I will send fire, it works like a a consequence. It's functioning like the word therefore. It means when you get to sow, what is coming after that is based upon what immediately came before it. And based on this pattern, what do we expect Amos to say next? We expect these charges to be followed by fire. Do we not? Seven times sin is followed by judgments of fire on the city. That repetition is important because here it's not there. When we get to Israel, it's not, so I will send fire. But he's not to judgment yet either. He's he's not done. He has more to add to the charges. He says yet. And this is critical for us as we go into verses 9 through 11, 12, excuse me, where we will see God's redemption disregarded. In verse 9, this yet, it presents us with a contrast rather than a resulting consequence. The judgment, it's still coming. It's still inbound. But God has more to add to his case against Israel. And the contrast of Israel's offenses against God is what he intends to make, to say, your offenses against God contrasted with God's past action toward Israel. Because we all know Israel is not just another Gentile nation living in idolatry, are they? No. They're the covenant, beloved people of God, chosen by His own hand and brought into His own to live under His name. But He's the one who's judging them. So what we're finding here is God is about to magnify their crimes by adding to them the context of history. Look what He says in verse 9 through 11 here. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite and raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? The destruction of the Amorites here, this is something that happens after the Exodus and the 40 years in the wilderness. God promised land to Israel, good land. And after delivering them from their Egyptian slavery and providing for them in the wilderness for 40 years, he gives them this land by either exterminating or displacing its current inhabitants. The Amorites, they're known to be large men of great strength. And God says that they were tall like cedars and strong like oaks to say that Israel would have been an underdog against this enemy is a gross understatement and yet they prevail but we see here it's not because of Israel it's because of the Lord he says I did that God builds up the Amorite strength here to show that that which would have been overpowering to Israel it's easily wiped away Wiped off the map when God decides to act for the cause of his beloved. And the fruit above and the roots below imagery is just emphasizing further that he didn't just defeat them in a battle. This is an existential defeat, present and future. They will not recover from what the Lord brings upon them. And then in verse 10, God recalls how He delivered them from Egypt and cared for them in the wilderness, even through their grumbling and their unfaithfulness and disobedience in their wanderings. I mean, you know this story. Think of Israel's behavior there. Think of how they complained about food, how they failed the three great tests God gave them, which you can find recounted by Jesus in Matthew 4, where He cites them to the devil in the face of His three temptations in the wilderness. Think of the 40 years. That time period is a punishment on a disobedient generation of Israelites. But God kept them. He protected them. He preserved them through all of that for His own namesake and not because of their behavior. The Lord goes on in 11 with how He raised up spiritual leaders in Israel. And Nazarites would be those who would take by choice a vow of dedication to the Lord. And it involves abstaining from grapes and anything made from them and from haircuts and from touching dead bodies. The details of the vow are less important than what it represents for us here, which is holiness. It's a person entirely set apart for God and His work. If you're attending home groups, uh, you have probably learned by now that the text indicates likely that Samuel was under such a vow. God also raised up prophets, men who spoke the very words of God to Israel. What's being pictured here is that what God gave to Israel was He gave himself simply by revealing himself to them. The one true God, the creator of the heavens and earth, he chooses to speak to Israel and to call them his own. And then he adds this rhetorical question at the end of 11. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? Most of us know Rhetorical questions, they work in such a way so that there's only one real possible answer, right? It makes the response redundant and and not necessary. But you generally use it when the person it's directed toward will not like the response. Of course it is so. In my house, when my boys get angry at something I've asked them to do, I'm known at home for asking them, who has wronged you that you are so angry right now? Or what injustice has taken place that you feel so filled with wrath? This is when the thing I've asked them to do is like, brush your teeth. They don't need the answer, and I don't need the answer. And we look at each other, And nothing actually needs to be said. It might be, right? But it doesn't need to be. We both know the answer. And now God and Israel both know the answer. And God points out their response to His great works. In verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine. And you commanded the prophets saying, You shall not prophesy. This verse is like a bit of an appendix to 6 through 8 because it's further charges there. But these crimes, they only they function on the knowledge that we gain of what the Lord has done for Israel that's spelled out in 9 through 11. God performed all these deeds for his people, even down to the raising up of these pillars of holiness and messengers to declare his word to them. But these Nazarites Israel forced them to break their vow. And this meaning that's carried there would be that they coerced them through things like intimidation, maybe threats, into causing them to drink wine by force. The prophets came with the word of the Lord for His people and they, they shut them up too. When they would hear the man speaking, Thus says the Lord, which should have been their joy, they said, Stop talking. We will not hear this. Sometimes they did it with violence against those prophets. In these two people, we see God's holiness and God's word represented. Israel rejected the law which was for their holiness And they rejected God's Word, which was their connection to Him and the very source of their identity. Unless you feel too far removed from this, we could just ask, what's different about this today in our culture? Those who wish to live in moral autonomy for the self, they simply go about tearing down the moral standards that would bind them. And those who love sin, they continue to violently often reject God's word and then they insulate themselves from those who would speak God's truth into their lives. Some of you have friends and family members who do this to you. We need to pause for a moment here and, and, and backtrack into 9 through 11. Did you notice, notice what happened there? These acts of God, they're they're not in order. They're not in a chronological order. The Amorites, this is what happens after the exodus and the wilderness, and so are the Nazarites and the prophets. Why does God order the events like this? Why are the Amorites placed before the exodus? Hebrew literature often utilizes a structure, a literary structure uh, in its workings that will use pairs of phrases or events at the start and the end of a thought unit, and then sometimes several of them, and they step their way by pairs, beginning and end, and they step their way down to the center where you will find one thing that's not a pair at the middle, that stands on its own, one phrase or one event. And where you find this, in the text, it is very often meant to be the emphasis of the text. The center stands on its own. And as we look at 9 through 11, you find placed in the center... the exodus from Egypt and the 40 years in the wilderness. On either side of that, at the beginning and the end, respectively, you find God's work to destroy and then to build up with deliverance in the center. And it's not just the deliverance from Egypt, it's their wandering 40 years in the wilderness. What happens during that 40 years? when the law is given. The Ten Commandments and all the law by which Israel is to live in obedience to the Lord, the law that sets them apart from the idol-worshipping nations around them, the law by which they are commanded repeatedly throughout that law, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's, it's a beautiful literary device that helps us understand The text and the scripture uses it very masterfully very often in the bible but if you then widen your view even just a little further you look at the whole passage that we have before us 6 through 16 this israel's judgment guess what else we find what do we find at the center of that the works of god for israel you find 9 through 11. you don't find the crimes against israel You find the works of God on Israel's behalf. The chronology of the events, it's out of order in order to make sure that the right thing lands in the center. So at the center of chapter 2, we find the works of the Lord for His people. And at the center of the works of the Lord for His people, we find the exodus and the provision in the wilderness wherein the Mosaic law is given. In verse 10. I want you to see this, that the central emphasis of this judgment is not immorality like the other nations in chapter 1. It is God's work of calling a people out of bondage and into a life of holiness. The central emphasis of this judgment is not immorality like the other nations in chapter 1. It is God's work of calling a people out of bondage and into a life of holiness. And that's what Israel has violated. The result of this emphasis must land with so much weight on our hearts. Israel is the recipient of these mighty works of redemption and sanctification, and they... Betrayed, says Amos, everything the Lord did for them. Brothers and sisters, for us today, living under the banner of the Lord's redemption, professing to belong to God's people while living as if He has not called you to a purpose and life of holiness, is cause for a harsh judgment, more so than those who never knew Him. We just read it in Romans 2. 12 and 13 for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law but all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before god but the doers of the law who will be justified israel's failure is that they are traitors under the banner of God's elect. They fly high, the flag of Yahweh, and they presume that He is blessing and protecting them because, why? Because they're prospering. All the while, they neglect all the mighty works He has done for them and the very means God gave them of covenant relationship with Him. Hear this. It's not merely that Israel is immoral and idolatrous like the Gentile nations. The crime here is that while God chose them in Abraham, heard them with compassion in Egypt, delivered them from the Pharaoh's oppressive hand, made covenant with them through Moses and the law, carried them through 40 years in the wilderness by miraculous provision and protection, brought them into the land of promise, wide and broad, flowing with milk and honey all of these mighty works of grace and favor, they forsook them all so that they could be immoral and idolatrous like the Gentile nations. Does this break your heart like it does mine? Because that's what this text is meant to do. And if I'm honest, it makes me feel a sense of despair in my own unrighteousness. Because Israel was given every possible advantage and handicap to be faithful to God in holiness. And if they failed, if they could not do it, I ask, what hope have I to please the Lord with any of my good works? One of the big picture lessons in the whole Bible that Israel, among many, this is just one of them, that Israel gives is that we learn from her failures. We summarize what is shown on the whole course of them, a doctrine called total depravity or total inability. And this states that the testimony throughout the Bible is that man is not capable of worshiping God as we ought. And this failure began when Adam watched his wife be deceived by the serpent. Go read it. He was there and he did nothing. And then he came to her side and indulged the lie with her that they knew better than their creator what was best for them. And man, after that, has never escaped the spiritual death that occurred that day in the garden. And the rest of the Old Testament is sprinkled, if not very much splattered, with narratives and discourses and poetic works that display this inability to worship God aright. Paul says that those who have the law will be judged by the law. Israel had the law, and so do we. We have our Bibles. And God will judge everyone. As Paul also says in Romans 2, He will render each according to His works on the day of His righteous judgment. Israel stands under judgment. It's the judgment of the law. And we stand under this judgment also at this point in our text, you should be thinking, if Israel could not live up to God's standard of holiness, how does anyone after them have a chance at a right relationship with God? And it's rhetorical almost, is it not? The answer is that no one can, and you can't. And it's a disparaging thought, to be Sure but it's necessary. When we talk about the good news, it's predicated on this that we call the bad news. It's very bad. The thought that unless something changes about our fallen nature, that this cycle that we see with Israel will repeat until judgment and the Lord now sets forth this judgment for Israel, this punishment. In 13 through 16, God's judgment, inescapable. The judgment for their crimes against the Lord, it's not like the other nations. It's not destruction by fire, but rather oppression. The Lord literally says, I will press you down in your place. And then what follows is this list of imagery which illustrates the inescapable nature of this oppression. And all of this comes to pass not very long later, ten years or so later, when the king of Assyria will lay siege to Samaria for three years until they surrender and go into captivity. You could read this account in 2 Kings 17. It sheds light on the severity of this judgment We don't have time to read it all today, but I want to highlight one of the places where it expands on Israel's sins. We learned there in 2 Kings 17 that Israel burned their sons and daughters as offerings to Baal. How barbaric. How heinous. How gruesome to throw your children to the fire in worship of a man-made God. We have come such a long way from such an evil practice. Is what some of you are thinking right now, is it not? But have we come so far? Have we? Just in our country alone... Since 1973, we have offered up over 62 million of our sons and daughters to a man-made God. The only difference is that we have shifted from offering them to idols made in our image to idols God's made of ourselves. We stopped worshiping little objects, and we did what we wanted to do all along, which was worship ourselves. And a half million more will be sacrificed to this God of self before this year is over. Israel is a spiritual portrait of us. And Amos says it's very bad. But we are far worse off than we realize. For three transgressions and for four, God will not revoke the punishment. This is... A hard text and it cries out to us but it does so with life-giving truth if we're willing to hear it today if you're an unbeliever here today but also if you're a casual or nominal or just church attending professing believer whose life does not exhibit the things that the scripture says the life of those who are in Christ exhibits if that's you and you can look inside and honestly see that and take a look at yourself, the word here today is heed the warning against unrighteousness and the neglect of the Lord's great redemption for you. You must leave here knowing that He will not withhold His judgment against sin forever. This is true outside the church as well as inside the church or Have you not, from Jake in Hebrews, been hearing the warning passages? That is what they are telling you. And the day may come when the warning you decide to heed will be that of iceberg right ahead. And the final alarm bell that comes too late for you to change course and to avoid destruction. Destruction. If you delay, if you close your ears, if you persist into the ice field day after day, you will find yourself among the earth dwellers described in Revelation 6, where the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Rhetorical question. And who can stand? You know the answer. When that day comes, it won't matter if you don't believe that He exists. The standard of justice you've invented for yourself to feel good about your life, He won't care about that. On that day, you will not be the one to stand in the face of Him who is seated on the throne. You will crumble under the weight of His righteous judgment. Earlier, we raised this question If Israel could not live up to God's standard of holiness, how does anyone after them have a chance at a right relationship with God? And how, indeed, can we be brought out of the path of God's wrath against sin? Unless something changes. Unless God acts in a new way to deliver His people from bondage, their real bondage, their real depravity... He does so in two ways that expose two great needs that are seen in this text today. They're worthy of our attention this morning as we close. One, we need a better righteousness. The righteousness that we need before God, we've learned today and throughout the testimony of Scripture, it cannot be found in any one of us. And it could not be found in Israel The sin of Adam brought utter hopelessness of unrighteousness that leads to death for everyone, all people. And Israel's written history testifies to the truth of this hopeless condition of death. But the righteousness of Christ is perfect obedience to the Father. He obeyed where Adam disobeyed. He was faithful where Israel was unfaithful. And that righteousness, the Scripture says, He will declare over us when we repent of our sin and place our faith in Him. And it is this faith in a Savior who is righteous on our behalf. That Paul speaks of in Romans 5, he explains how Christ's righteousness undoes the death caused by Adam's unrighteousness. The gospel then is the offer from Jesus that He will take away your sin and the death to which it leads and give you His righteousness as your declared status on the day when He comes to judge the earth. And this is the only way out of the path of judgment to come. Faith in Christ's righteousness. That's why we learn of Abraham through Paul. The righteous live by faith. Two, the second thing we learn that we need from Amos. We need a better covenant. One of the things I wanted to do with this sermon was to try to complement our current series in Hebrews. And you've been hearing week after week about Christ as our great high priest, and you will continue to hear that as Jake proceeds through the letter. You will also go on to show Christ as the priest who offers himself as the atoning sacrifice, who forgives sin by the shedding of his own blood. At the Last Supper, Jesus takes wine and says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as the Lord would have it today, is a day that we come to the Lord's table together to remember His covenant. We'll see in Hebrews how Jesus establishes and guarantees for us a better covenant than that of Moses. The law of Moses increases our sin problem. It does not make it better. Paul tells us this. And Amos tells us, for three transgressions and for four. But the covenant in Christ's righteous blood removes three transgressions and four. And if we connect those two needs exposed for us and in us in Amos 2, we will find what we need is a new covenant, one wherein Christ upholds our end on our behalf. The law continues to demand perfect righteousness of me and of you and of everyone. What we find in the new covenant is that Christ is our righteousness, and so we may keep covenant with God in Christ. And that is how traitors under the banner of the redeemed, you and I living in the church day to day while living in darkness out in the world where we love our sin, that is how we become truly reconciled. God. Traitors to the throne then become obedient sons of righteousness not through ours but through Christ's righteousness. But God does not revoke the punishment against sin. The punishment which will not be revoked he places on Jesus as he hangs on the cross bearing the wrath of God poured out on the son for the sins of his people. The word of Amos today for us is to hear the warning of the judgment to come and to hear the gospel of a righteousness of Christ offered in exchange for your unrighteousness. And it sounds unfair, like God's getting a raw deal. It's true, but that's what He offers. He says, you give me your sin and your unrighteousness and I give you my righteousness. And that's it. Turn from your sins today, wherever you are, in unbelief, in nominal belief. If you profess Christ and find your life is false, turn of your sin and your love of sin. Believe on Jesus, who bears the punishment for all our sins. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, our lives cannot worship you highly enough given all that you have done. And we find so often that our struggle is just to keep all the mighty works you have done for us even in view as we walk in our day-to-day lives and to not neglect so great of salvation as we go out in the world with all the temptations to indulge our flesh and to indulge the lie every day. but you forgive our sins and you remove them. You bear them away and you take the punishment for them with you. We thank you that you chose, Father, to act in a new way to deliver your people through the sending of your Son. May we delight in this truth amidst the hard conviction of the judgment that you promised to bring against sin in the world all this happens for your glory and for the good of your people. Help us to live in holiness by the power of your spirit as those who have been given Christ's righteousness. In the strong name of Christ we pray today. Amen.